Hello and welcome. You're listening to Housing for All, the podcast that believes we all deserve a great home that allows us to flourish. I'm Chris. And I'm Mary. And I'm Andrew. What are we talking about today, guys? Well, Mary, you really summed it up really well last time when you said that our housing system exposes so many of us to so much risk and hardship. But if the government takes such an active role in our housing system, why don't they protect us from this risk and this hardship? And that should really outrage us. So last episode was all about home ownership. The level of government support for homeownership is so extensive that it's no exaggeration to call all homeownership public housing. Today, we're making that same case for rental housing. Mm. All right. Well, let's see what other wise things I'll say this time around. <laughs> Why doesn't the free market respond to the need for affordable housing? <laughs> so we have a housing crisis and... There's a huge demand for small, simple, modest, no frills kind of apartments that can be rented at an affordable price. So why doesn't the free market respond to this very, very clear market demand? Um, why do we see luxury housing being constructed when there is so clearly a market for these kind of modest no frills housing. And this is a, a good exercise for today because we're talking about apartments and usually this question is framed in terms of apartments. Why don't investors um, invest in um, in rental housing that, that can be affordable? So what do, you, what do you think? I would guess that, I mean, this is, again, uh, partially my economic naivete, but I feel like on some level, isn't all that luxury housing built on the uh, demolished previously more affordable housing that uh, uh, it is across America. I mean, isn't it, you know, from a, from a, from an investment perspective, uh, at least my understanding and the way it has always been presented to me is that ownership is more, um, is better from an investment point of view because it's assumed, I think perhaps unfairly and um, with extreme bias that owners will take better care of a property versus renters, you know, and, and it was discussed like, you know, in episode one, you know, for a lot of landlords, it's not, there's not a lot of economic incentive to take care of rental properties, even as, as dark as that sounds. But um, it, it seems like, you know, from a long-term perspective, getting someone to buy a luxury condo will be more valuable to people. Um, or is perceived as such, perhaps because of like unfair biases and deeper social issues, which are driving this sort of activities. They also they also want to um, in in some ways there is a uh, there's economic advantage in not actually having filling up your building, mm, but sure. instead just selling um, a lot of your luxury housing as um, basically like tax shields and mo and money shields <laughs> um, to very rich people who may never live in it. Yeah. Right. So it's just like, it's like you build this luxury housing and then you sell it to other people who buy it as an investment property, who sell it to somebody else who buys it as an investment property, mm -hmm. money, making money, money forever. And it's not actually there for someone to live there. Yeah. It's just like a, a smoke and mirrors basically. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it, it's, it's an investment. It's not a home. Sure. Um, additionally, there must be all kinds of um, really cool laws that were put in <laughs> that prevented uh, poor people from moving into rich neighborhoods. 
And I uh, bet yeah. that also causes quite a bit of problems. Not so much in the example of, um, of you know, I'm coming, I'm coming into, I'm coming into Brooklyn, uh, 15 years ago. I'm knocking down all of these, um, all of these affordable apartments, and I'm building really expensive luxury apartments that I can sell to richer people because now mm. it's hot. I think that example more is like, why, why do we not have more population density in the burbs because there are zoning laws that keep you out that are designed to do that also as we've seen i think uh well-planned economies are generally more effective than the free market the the sort of enigma of the free market yeah oh also the free market is a sham (laughs) i think it should be highlighted uh here and and who does it serve does it serve its people very rarely no well, I think you're overthinking this. Classic, <laughs> um, so, classic. Us. <laughs> so, no, so a lot of, um, I mean, there's all kinds of, uh, all different ideas that have an element of truth here. Um, you mentioned zoning. Like a lot of times zoning is kind of blamed for this problem. Um, right. There's a sense of like something is getting in the way of the market. Um a lot of, and you know, this isn't what you said, but a lot of times people just say, well, you know, if the government would just get out of the way, the problem mm-hmm. <laughs> would solve itself. Um, but um, that's really, uh, that's really just overthinking it. Um, the The real reason is that the math just doesn't add up. It is literally impossible to build housing and charge affordable rents. And this is one of two ideas that I really wish we could cover in a a podcast format. Um, So one more pitch for my Indiegogo project. Um, But this just really can't be covered properly in a podcast format. Um, But basically, a building that charges affordable rents will never generate enough revenue to pay back the loans used to build it. Huh. So does that make sense? I mean, like, I mean, it doesn't. Yes, but, but no. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. I understand what you're saying, but what you're saying sounds like nonsense and yeah. is insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, in theory, if you're building, one would think in a free and equitable society that if you're building um, housing to a to a reasonable standard on land, that it should be rentable by the people who also live on that land. Mm-hmm. You would think and that you would eventually be able to defray, you know, like offset your costs, because that's how I believe the free market should work. Right. (laughs) Right. You're providing you're providing a service and part of your service is or you're providing a service. And part of that is uh, your sweat equity. And then eventually you reap rewards. Right. You can you can make your money back. Um, So it, it seems like it seems like if that's not if that's not the way it works, then we have we have really, really basic problems <laughs> then somebody, that are only going to get worse. Then somebody's lied to us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. I, absolutely. <laughs> um, it's uh, the math just doesn't doesn't add up. Um, there is no. There can be no free market solution um, to uh, to our housing problems. Um, so to just just to flush it out with a few numbers. Um, so. I think it's helpful to kind of work backwards. Um, so the median price to build a brand new, small, uh, you know, very modest single family home um, is about $280,000. Um, and 
that doesn't include the costs of the land, right? So, you know, more desirable location means even higher and higher prices. Um, for housing, the greater the number of units in a building, the lower cost per unit. And so you would think, okay, great, let's build, you know, very large buildings and, um, you know, really keep that per unit cost low. Um, that was kind of the theory behind uh, what what Singapore did with their housing system. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, you know, when you get up to a 100 unit building, um, you do get considerable cost savings, right? You Now you've gotten it down to around $200,000 per unit. Um, but even a 100 unit building costs too much per unit to charge affordable rents. Um, just if you charge a rent that people can afford, you will never generate enough revenue to pay back the loans um, that you needed to build the building. Hmm. Um, so there just is no free market solution to our housing problems. The math just doesn't add up. There has to be some public subsidy. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Again, I'll, I'll read early. That seems, that seems mind boggling, but it does. I hear what you're putting down. It's almost as if libertarianism would never work. (laughs) I think it's fun to think about this in the opposite way, too, in that if there is housing working reasonably well somewhere, there has to be public subsidy. Yeah. Or it wouldn't, you know, or it wouldn't be working well. Let's do let's do one more um, since uh, since this is the last episode. Um, So, you know. You remember, we talked about a lot of different government programs last episode, and so we're going to be meeting some of them again today. Um, so Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Federal Housing Administration, we're going to we're going to meet them again today. So this is just a little exercise um, that covers, you know, a really important idea that we just didn't have time for last episode. And it's also going to kind of refresh our memory about these organizations. Um, so the issue here is that some people say that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the federal home loan bank system are not actually public at all, um, but they're actually private. Hmm. Some people, um, you know, they acknowledge that there is some special role that these organizations play. um, And so they use the term government-sponsored entities, uh, or GSE. So we can use that acronym um, GSE right now to refer to those three, um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Bank. That sounds exactly Um, like a euphemism. No, no, it's not public. It's just a government sponsored entity. (laughs) Totally (laughs) different. So, so yeah, I mean, there's we've all got our issues that get us real hot under the collar. This is mine. Um, So, you know, we could, we could spend an entire episode just talking about how wrong this is. Um, so let's just for now, just go through um, some of the major points just so that, you know, people are aware of this issue and they know why, um, why these really are public organizations. Um, and then also, so some of the other organizations we met last episode, Ginny May, the Federal Housing Administration, uh, the VA, the FDIC, those are like literally part of the government. Nobody questions that those are public. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just these three, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Federal Home Loan Bank. So um, so this is completely absurd. Um, the GSEs are totally government programs. Um, 
I found a very striking description of Fannie Mae's operations. Uh, so, quote, Fannie Mae is compelled by law to provide liquidity to loan originators in all economic conditions. Hmm. It must legally ignore adverse market conditions which appear to be unprofitable. If there are loans available for purchase that meet its predetermined underwriting standards, it must purchase them if no other buyers are available. End quote. I mean, just as any private company would do. The GSEs are government programs because they are bound by law to serve the government's affordable housing goals at all costs. There is no private entity that is required by law to disregard its financial well-being in service to a public mission. Hmm. Not even nonprofits are required to do this, to disregard their financial well-being. So Fannie Mae, and we talked about Fannie Mae last episode, and Fannie Mae was a part of the government until 1968. Um, and then kind of like what you said, where they were like, uh, no, they're totally private. Um, so what happened in 1968 is President Johnson is running up huge deficits fighting an increasingly unpopular war in Vietnam. So he privatizes, and I'm using scare quotes, um, <laughs> doesn't really work in a podcast. Uh, so he, you know, quote, privatizes Fannie Mae um, so that its liabilities are no longer counted as government liabilities. And now suddenly with the stroke of a pen, the Vietnam War deficits don't look that bad. Huh. So. So wait, he like just like tucked them all up into this and then was like, nope, you can't count these things. And that was it? Put them under a proverbial yeah. rug, basically. Well, so it, there, nothing nothing changed. All right, so... Yeah. Um, well, right, no, yeah. the, money, the money didn't go anywhere, but it was just like he, like, took it off one leisure, leisure and was like, yeah, it doesn't count because these this is a different thing now. Exactly, yeah. I mean, they didn't have Excel spreadsheets back then, but basically <laughs> it was like, you know, cutting and pasting, you know, balances. <laughs> so it was, but that's all it was. It was like moving it to a different Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. Um, that's literally all it was, right? Once it was, you know, quote unquote, privatized, nothing changes in Fannie Mae's mission or its operations. Um, everything's the same. It's, so that just, it makes it so hard to see how, you know, the GSEs um, are anything other than government programs. Um, just for, so if, yeah, obfuscated for, for reasons of like, public image it seems like largely. totally totally yeah. Pop, yeah popped out of your trapper pop open your trapper <laughs> keeper pull out those pages put them in a different trapper keeper not a problem <laughs> anymore yeah exactly. not a problem exactly. anymore it's all great yeah exactly so and then for the record uh freddie mac is created two years later um after fannie mae is you know changed um to be quote-unquote private and then freddie mac is created two years later on the same hmm. you know GSE model. This isn't the first time that this, you know, distinction between public and private has come up and just not been as straightforward as maybe we're led to believe. Mm -hmm. um, episode two is where we really talked about this a lot, where uh, Dutch public housing is technically private, but it's bound by law to serve the public. And meanwhile, Swedish public housing is literally government owned, but has no public service mission whatsoever. Hmm. Um, so, you know, just another example of you know, this public-private distinction not not being totally clear-cut, but in this case, the GSEs are, they are completely, completely uh, public. Um, so some people might say, okay, so, all right, so fine, they've got a public service mission, um, but they don't get any government funding, so they can't be, they can't be public. Um, and that's true. The GSEs 
uh, no longer have any government funding. But neither does the post office. Um, so both the GSEs and the United States Postal Service were ceded by the federal government, given a public mission, and then became financially self-sustaining. So if you're going to claim that the GSEs aren't public, then neither is the post office public. And we just know that that's absurd. Um, there's another important one that we've talked about a few times. Public housing has no government funding. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's yeah. Public that's housing topic, has to yeah. be financially self-sustaining. Yeah. So if you're going to say that the GSEs are private because they no longer yeah, have no, public but, funding. Yeah, no, but the public funding, yeah, you're right. The thing that you, you want to say that public it. housing yeah. is, yep. not, is not public, and that's crazy. Um, the other problem with that is that they do get government funding, right? <laughs> if they're not government programs, then why do they get bailed out by the government if they run into problems? Hmm. So they are government funding, so, even more than the post office, yeah. which God bless those should, people's hearts. Should be bailed out which by are the just, government. Yeah. Well, are just like bossed around by the government. It's like, yeah. no, you got to be self-sufficient, but we get to set the price on stamps. Like, who do you think you are? Right. <laughs> who do you think you are? Um, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. So, so then, um, as some, some people, you know, persist and they say, well, um, okay, this all may be true, but Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they have private investors. And since they have private investors, they can't be public. Um, so this requires a little bit of background. So, um, as we know, Fannie Mae was created in the Great Depression, mm -hmm. um, and it actually funded itself initially by selling bonds. So a bond is a piece of paper that you buy, and uh, Fannie Mae promises to pay you back with interest. And okay. so basically, um, you know, these the interest rates on the bonds are a little bit lower than the interest rates on the mortgages. And so Fannie Mae has money coming in as people buy bonds. They use that cash to buy mortgages. And then people, um, you know, slowly pay back their mortgage over time. Um, and so some of that money going in, uh, Fannie Mae has to then pay out to the bondholders. Okay. Um, so that's how they funded themselves. Here's the thing. That's exactly how the Homeowners Loan Corporation was funded, by selling bonds. And the Homeowners Loan Corporation was unquestionably public. It was always part of the government. The U.S. government also, um, in its history, has sold war bonds. Mm -hmm. And there was a slogan from World War I that said, if you can't enlist, invest. Um, so there even is the I word invest. Hmm. So the fact that there are private investors means nothing because many, many government programs have investors. Yeah, because I mean, stocks, stocks and bonds are sort of two associated terms like you definitely, you know, the, yeah, in, like this the private funding is, is inherent in that. Inherently, it is inherently understood that private funding is a part of that. At least I, I assume. I guess. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, and so some people will say, okay, so um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? They don't use bonds anymore. They have stocks and that makes hmm. them private. And that's like clearly just grasping at straws. So we're going to say that the Homeowners Loan Corporation was a government program because they sold bonds, but Fannie Mae is private because they have stocks. Um, it just doesn't make sense. Um, yeah. Worldwide, so uh, <laughs> worldwide, there are hundreds of state-owned enterprises that have stock, right? They're public corporations, but they have private shareholders that own stock. So in this country, Volkswagen is the best known example. Um, Volkswagen is actually controlled by the state of Lower Saxony in Germany. Hmm. Um, so not very common in this country, um, but public corporations are very common internationally. Um, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac fit that um, 
pretty pretty well actually um the other thing is that the government will bail out fanny and freddie if they ever run into problems um so basically the government won't let that stock lose value um what kind of stock has no risk of losing value <laughs> so like i dispute that these are that this is even stock to begin I mean, with ideally ideally one that my retirement funds are in i can i guess oh, oh yeah oh yeah that's crazy and then um, for 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 the Federal Home Loan Bank, um, the Federal Home Loan Bank is actually modeled off of the Federal Reserve. Hmm. So if we're going to say that the Federal Home Loan Bank is not a part of the government, then neither is the Federal Reserve a part of the government. And that's absurd. Um, the Federal Home Loan Bank is technically owned by the banks that receive advances. Um, but a lender can only own one share. A share can never be transferred or sold. And the share is worthless, except that it allows you to apply for advances from the federal home loan bank system. Hmm. Um, so, you know, nothing like a private entity. Um, they're public. And again, you know, we just kind of rifled through these ideas um, just so that, you know, they're out there. Um, you know, our listeners just know, you know, the contours of the argument. The way I would summarize this is to say that the Homeowners Loan Corporation was a public organization funded by investors who wanted to grow their money, but wanted to do so in a socially responsible way. The Homeowners Loan Corporation was perfect for this. The Homeowners Loan Corporation took their money, put it towards affordable housing goals, and then paid investors back with interest. And this exactly describes what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac do today. Their public service mission comes first, and only then paying out to investors. Um, so have I convinced you that uh, these uh, three organizations, Fannie, Freddie, and the Federal Home Loan Bank, are public? Despite their attempts to uh, to, ling- to linguistically uh, wrangle me away from that point, I, I am convinced. You, 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 okay. <laughs> I've seen through the, the cartoonish use of, <laughs> of, of public and private uh, to distinguish these. Cartoonish is a good description. Yeah, th- I mean, this this is maddening, right? Like, this is this is this this is like um, like a Terry Gilliam film, practically. You know? <laughs> right. It's ridiculous, right? No, it, yeah, it's um, yeah. I mean, it's it's really, uh, I mean, it's really harmful, right? Because it's you know, it kind of prevents people from realizing that they live in public housing. Yeah. Um. So, in any case, you know. A useful exercise because we're going to be meeting Fanny and Freddie shortly. <laughs> okay, so this episode, um, what we're claiming is that private rental housing is public housing. And as with last episode, we are necessarily skipping enormous spending on housing in order to keep this episode at a reasonable length. Let's just look at a couple quick examples. Um, so New York City's 421A program subsidizes the construction of rental housing. The program costs the city $1.2 billion every year, and less than 10% of that supports the creation of affordable housing. <laughs> um, everyone's housing is subsidized, not just... Not just the poor. So yeah, so like that ten percent is going. So just to just to clarify, the ten percent is going towards things that people can afford to live in in New York City, or else is just like homeowners who happen to have like multi million dollar um, condos or apartments, or or you know everyone else vacation in between homes. vacation homes, yeah, things like that. Right. 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 
Um, and it's not just New York City. Cities across the country heavily subsidize private developers. This isn't just something that happens, you know, on the coasts. Sure. Another example. I'll bet you didn't know that real estate companies are tax exempt. I didn't know that. That's very surprising. <laughs> real estate companies and churches. Hey, that's <laughs> yeah, right. the religion of real estate. <laughs> So real estate companies pay on average a 1.1% tax rate. Oh, my God. <laughs> Your typical business pays 11% taxes. So 10 times <laughs> the, the, the tax rate of your typical real estate company. Um, restaurants typically pay 19% taxes. Your typical trunky company pays 31% taxes. Um Harry Macklow is a New York City real estate tycoon, and he got divorced in 2019. And because this went to court, a lot of the couple's assets were read into the public record. Um, so among them, they owned an $829 million art collection. In 2004, he bought the General Motors building for $1.4 billion. Um, so he's loaded. <laughs> yeah. He I, would, had not, I would imagine. He had not paid any taxes since the 1980s. <laughs> Can you imagine a real estate developer in New York never paying taxes? That's that's such a <laughs> right. that's such a full, in, in, inconceivable thought. <laughs> My God. <laughs> and then um, there's you know a more famous real estate mogul um, who's been accused of not paying taxes. Um, recently, well, U.S. earlier taxes. this year, President <laughs> Trump, uh, some of his taxes were leaked. Um, so we're not going to touch that one because there's some question about whether what he did was actually legal. Um, and that kind of undercuts my point here is that the problem is what is legal. Um, however, right. he could he could have just be a criminal. He could be a criminal. <laughs> right. So it's um, possible. However, <laughs> So, so, so there are, um, but previously there were a handful of leaked pages from, uh, President Trump's 1995 tax returns. And these showed that he legally could have paid zero taxes for 18 years on up to $50 million of income each year. Oh my God. And that would have been through real estate tax credits. So. Huh. You know, my question here is if real estate companies are going to be taxed like nonprofits, why shouldn't they act like nonprofits? <laughs> Especially if they're on some level fundamentally benefiting from public funding or being being kept safe, I assume, you know, on some level. Or maybe that's maybe that's an unfair assumption, but I, you know, it seems like public funding and tax exemption are synthesizing into a, a way that feels a little bit um Morally dubious. It is tricky, though, because, I mean, basically, the reason people get into real estate is because of is because you don't is because you can cheat your way out of and avoid paying your taxes. Yeah. Right. So it's hard because you're basically being like, um, we need these entities to behave themselves. We need them to to act as as responsible citizens, even though all of the people who got one hundred percent of the people who got involved in it did it because they didn't have to behave like reasonable citizens and could just cheat their way to to uh, extreme wealth, which would allow them to um, actually start breaking some real some real laws mm -hmm. with impunity. So it's it's hard because you're basically you're basically being like, no, we need to uh, we need to make sure that this this pack of this pack of villain of villains start behaving <laughs> themselves. Like, like that's not why they got into it. 
So, uh, yeah. Which is going to require <laughs> legislation. Yes. What? Yeah. What? What you said, Andrew. Um, yeah. It's it's going to feel a lot less fair the longer we're into this episode. <laughs> Great. Um, so, but entire books have been written to help real estate investors avoid paying taxes. And we, we're not going to go into how these how these programs and tax credits actually work. Um, that's kind of, you know, that's really um, just an example um, of just billions and billions of dollars of government support for rental housing um, that we're just not going to be able to cover um, in this format. So this episode is about how rental housing is subsidized. A key lesson of our last episode is that there are massive, massive subsidies in the housing system, but they are hidden from public view. The system would literally come crashing down without government support. And rental housing is the same way. It is no exaggeration to say that all rental housing is public housing due to the level of government subsidy. Okay, so let's let's jump right into it. Let's get into it. Yeah. So it will make most sense to talk separately about one to four unit rental housing and then switch to multifamily rental housing. Kind of confusing terms. Um, five or more units in a building that is multifamily housing. Okay. So a little confusing. Like a, like a large apartment complex or a five. A more than five. Yeah. <laughs> does it does it cover all of that? So if I have like five hundred apartments or five apartments that they're all called multifamily that's that's correct <laughs> awesome great <laughs> love it they were like ah, four that's cut <laughs> off that's when it's really important for us to know i suppose <laughs> i suppose it does sort of make sense in that you can probably squeeze four apartments out of most old big houses mm, fair but yeah. yeah once you once you kind of get past that then then you're kind of so maybe it's it's that's the distinction more of an infrastructure yeah. question. Though honestly, giving the benefit of the doubt to anyone involved in these situations feels like a feels like a, a move you're going to regret <laughs> at yeah. some point in the next like hour or so. That's true. That's yeah. true. Thirty-eight percent of all rental housing is single-family housing, and um, does that? I guess does that surprise you? I guess when so single family just to just to keep my to refresh the definitions does that explicitly mean like a home like an actual like single unit house that is not connected to yes yeah. okay okay that does surprise that is surprising me. yeah because I every time I have wanted to rent a house like that it has not been readily available in, 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 it has not been in existence in yeah, this material yeah, yeah, plane yeah. so difficult difficult to find yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so, but 38% of all rental housing is single family, 18% is in two to four unit buildings. So 56% of all rental housing stock is one to four unit uh, rental housing. Um, I, I guess it does make sense, though, because I'm used to living in urban areas. Oh, sure. But if you think about rural communities, or even more to the point, um, like little towns and things like that, probably like almost 100% of their rental market like they might have like a like an apartment building or two but most of it's got to be houses so that probably tips the scale a little bit sure and it, it is just a common misconception that most rental housing is in large buildings with many units hmm. um but uh really not the case so for um these 1 to 4 units buildings um the vast majority of one to four unit rental housing um 
would not exist without home ownership subsidies. The vast majority were constructed with homeownership subsidies and then eventually, decades later, were acquired by a landlord. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think every, I'm going out on a limb. Every apartment I've ever lived in is one of these. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I don't think I'm going out on a limb by saying that a landlord can't acquire a rental property if the home was never built in the first place. I think that's a fair point. I mean, there's <laughs> that probably seems some, like a nice point of law. There's yes. probably a philosophical argument against that, but that's not the point of this show. So, so the so the vast majority of these homes would never have been built without home ownership subsidies. Um, so, for two to four unit buildings, um, you know, these were originally built as a single family home and then divided, or more commonly, they were built as a two to four unit building with an owner living in one of the units, and that's why they were eligible for home ownership subsidies. Sure, there it's are some the cap- idea of uh, it's the idea of the the Polish flat in our neighborhood where you have a. Like often immigrants would buy a small house and then build a second floor to to rent out for. Right. They build a ground floor first, live in it. And then when they made it. Yeah. Build a second, second and third floor, move into the second and third floor and rent out their first floor to other people who are just starting out in America and then pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Decades later, someone who has no moral compass would buy the building. No, that's not, that's perhaps buy the building. Uh, Take (laughs) advantage of the subsidies. Strip strip it entirely. (laughs) Yeah. Give some, give, do some shoddy plumbing work at salt for way more than it's worth. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's a great countertop. Yeah. (laughs) So there, so um, so that's um, there are some caveats here. So um, some of these homes were built prior to the New Deal, and so the construction would have been unsubsidized because right these subsidies were all created in the New Deal. Sure. Um, there also was some semi-formal lending. It wasn't long ago that lenders would not lend to African Americans or immigrants, um, and so there was some semi-formal lending that built some of these buildings. It's impossible to know how many, but if it was outside of the formal banking system, there wouldn't have been any direct subsidy like that. Super cool of those guys. And that's like the distinction. I know this is probably off topic, but the distinction between historically realtors and realtists, right? Mm -hmm. You mentioned this on another show um, where African-Americans couldn't work with realtors. So they had sort of a, a, a... secondary sort of offshoot of the profession called realtists who... I can't remember the distinction between them, but they. Um, I mean, there yeah. really wasn't any except that except yeah. that they were willing to work, and also um, with people who uh, traditional real estate agents were too racist to want to, <laughs> and also they um, specialized in the kinds of loans sure. that um, were available to black people at that time. Yeah, which were, by the way, not great. <laughs> Surprisingly <laughs> enough, <laughs> super cool. I did. I actually, I did not know that actually. Um, yeah, it's crazy, right? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's a kind of weird, another fun linguistic trick. <laughs> yeah. Right, it's right. just, it's just putting the people in different categories and being like, no, this is meaningful. It's not. Yeah. Things need to, things need to have true meaning, true reasons why they exist in categories. You can't just rename stuff. <laughs> Johnson. Anyway. <laughs> wow. So, um, okay. So, so right. So those caveats, some built prior to the new deal would have been upset unsubsidized. Um, some built with semi-formal letting would have been unsubsidized. Um, but if there was ever any sale to a homeowner since the 1930s in the formal banking system, that sale would have been subsidized. So we can say that basically all, uh, one to four unit 
rental housing was at some point subsidized with homeownership subsidies. Gotcha. That makes sense. I think yeah. the tr- it transfers that that property of public housing transfers over from our last episode to cover those at the very least. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, um, yeah. So to summarize, the vast majority of one to four unit apartments were constructed with homeownership subsidies and they were responsibly maintained over the decades thanks to homeownership subsidies. Hmm. Landlord can't acquire a building if it was never built in the first place um, or if it was not properly cared for. Um, So what we're saying is that landlords are benefiting from uh, decades of homeownership subsidies when they acquire these homes and start renting them out. I'm going to say that this is a lot like public housing. What do you think I mean by that? I mean, I think there's sort of the the obvious answer that um, public funds have in some capacity maintained this property so it could be a thing that could be owned. Um, and it could not exist without the use of those funds. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's about right. Um, so uh, specifically what I was, what I was fishing for. Um, <laughs> so once it's constructed, public housing by law has to be financially self-sustaining. There's mm-hmm. no ongoing public subsidy for public housing. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what's going on here, right? They're subsidized for a while and then um, they have to be financially self-sustaining once they become rental housing. What this all boils down to is it's like, yes, none of this works. <laughs> none of this works. None of this, None of it works at all unless there is there's some sort of subsidy it just kind of depends on how transparent that is to you at any given time and there's lots of um there's lots of uh we're not managing it as well as we could if we kind of like the scales fell from our eyes and we could be like look this is what's actually going on here in all of these cases so therefore these things should behave like this this way and people should benefit from it in that way yeah. right yeah yeah um and we also talked quite a bit in our first episode about the just desperate need for subsidy um, for uh, for this one to four unit rental housing. Um, some of the worst aspects of our housing system occur in these one to four unit um, rentals. Um, you know, it seems like there's got to be some way to you know, incorporate some of these as nonprofits in exchange for subsidy to take care of some of the really dire maintenance issues. Um, it just can't keep going like it's going. Um, it's just a, it's a very broken system. And you would think that there would be some interest in preserving it. I mean, in these, in these markets and urban areas, at the very least, mostly what you're talking about are old neighborhoods and yeah. like a lot of, I mean, in the, in the cold clinical world that I think is closer to what we actually live in. Um, except I think it's a little bit uh, stupider. Clinical implies at least there's logic um, <laughs> at play, which I don't think there always is. Um, this stuff doesn't matter. But I think in terms of um, trying to trying to get people to stay in your city, trying to attract new people to move in, those sorts of things, th- that's why people move. No, there's no reason for everyone to move to cities that are incredibly – that are all taken over um, – by like soulless condos and chains. Like, yeah, I mean, no one wants to do that. Long-term investment. I mean, this seems like there's a lot of like short-term focus versus long-term, yeah, like multi-generational investment, which is yeah. right. Like you're taking care of your histor- <laughs> Like they're not quite historic, but you're taking care of the of the properties that give your city its flavor. Yeah, 
you know, or it's in your neighborhood, it's it's personality. You would think that there would be interest in doing that. Well, there's certainly interest in the people that have to live in those buildings. Mm. <laughs> yeah, there is a population that really concerns is concerned about that. I don't even know what I'm talking about because like gentrification in and of itself proves that people do not think about this until it's too late. Of course. Yeah. They're like, oh, this is a cool neighborhood. Oh, wait, not anymore. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, we've made it too expensive to be cool. Um, so I think people do realize that. I think they just realize it at the wrong point in time. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's everything I've got for one to four units, uh, private rental housing. So are we are we convinced that this type of housing is public housing? Yes. Thoroughly. Gavel. OK. Gavel, okay. gavel. Yes. <laughs> OK, then we'll so we can move on. Um, so, yeah, you're going to see there is uh, much, much more extensive subsidy for multifamily housing. Um, so, um, OK, so let's let's look at at that at multifamily rental housing. Um, so, like we said before, there is a common misconception that most rental housing is in large apartment complexes. Um, in fact, only 19% of rental housing stock is in buildings with 20 or more units, and only 10% of rental housing stock is in buildings with 50 or more units. Um, it's not much, right? So, we're talking about as a percentage of rental housing stock. Um, if we're talking about the total uh, as a percentage of all housing stock, only 3% of all housing stock is um, rental housing with 50 or more units. Um, That's it's so just not small. a lot of housing. Right. Yeah. Which feels crazy because I feel like, I mean, I guess, again, the urban versus everything else, like our perspective is sort of skewed by, you know seeing large buildings i guess though they really guess a lot of our i mean that's unfair because a lot of our rental properties are just old houses but when you think of like dense population buildings, i think it also is just a problem that you know the we're bad at estimating too that's fair that's when you fair. like look at a building and you're like i don't know like 100 <laughs> apartments in that building yeah i i suspect people are, are just generally not very good at it yeah Right. I mean, so I, I mentioned that again, because if we think back to the beginning of the episode, um, you know, where we're talking, why doesn't the free market, you know, solve this problem? Um, you know, why don't they build these big apartment uh, buildings that can be rented at an affordable price? And, you know, just how the math doesn't add up. But this really underscores um, how difficult it is to make these these huge buildings um, yeah. that so little of our housing stock is found in these large buildings, despite having a lower per unit cost. It's just not realistic to expect, um, you know, these large apartment complexes to just spring up and, you know, address our, our housing problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to warn you um, after last <laughs> episode, these numbers uh, that we're going to be talking about in this section are going to sound really, really tiny. Um, we're going to be talking about billions of dollars and not trillions of dollars. Oh, man. Um, yeah, right. I could find that in my couch cushions. Come um, on. So why do you think that is? Why are why is why are we talking about such less money? I mean, I think it's just probably like math it out there there's so much less of it yeah and, i guess i just yeah. gave that one away right um, yeah. like there's just less of it so of course of course there's and the money the money that's in it um seems a little bit more sloshy so yeah. i kind of can see why 
<laughs> it would be less. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, uh, mathing it out, about one third of housing is rental housing. About two thirds is home ownership. So, right off the bat, um, there's twice as much home ownership as there is rental housing. And then, like we said a few minutes ago, less than half of all rental housing is multifamily. Um, and so, you know, that means that just a sixth of all housing stock is multifamily rental compared to two thirds being home ownership. And then the other reason is that the, the per unit costs are lower. And so, you know, this just all adds up to uh, billions of dollars and not trillions of dollars. Sure. Okay. Those poor landlords. St- still an unfathomable amount of money. Yes. Money. You yeah. Know? Of like course. That's <laughs> staggering. So, okay. Um, multifamily lending is surprisingly analogous to lending for home ownership. So a cash down payment pays for the minority of a building's construction um, or acquisition or rehabilitation, and a mortgage pays for the majority. Okay. So it, it, I guess like in the same way that we, you, know, you give 20% down to buy a house, you must give X percent to buy a or create or restore or establish, I guess, a multifamily or multi-unit rental property, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So because of these similarities, we're going to see a lot of similarities in how the government subsidizes home ownership versus multifamily rental housing. Um, there's going to be some differences. Mm-hmm. So we'll be looking at four ways the federal government subsidizes multifamily rental housing. The last three are going to look pretty familiar to last episode, um, which was on subsidizing home ownership. Mm-hmm. The first way that the government subsidizes multifamily rental housing is through cash grants. Um, And so this is kind of just a stack of cash to build housing. Um, Not exactly, I guess. Um, So today, the major cash grant program supporting multifamily housing is the Low Income Housing Tax Credits Program. Um, So the acronym is LIHTC, and um, people say LIHTC. So... The LIHTC program is a $10 billion per year program to build housing that is temporarily reserved for low-income households and temporarily charges affordable rents. Um, so temporary, meaning 15 to 30 years. And at the end of that 15 to 30 years, um, it's then unrestricted. You can rent it to anyone for any price. Um, or knock it down and build luxury apartments because now the land that's on is, you know, worth worth (laughs) way more the building than the building itself right so um the best word i can come up with to describe this program is labyrinthine (laughs) um it is too complicated to really explain here and it's just absolutely rife with fraud um the problem is that it's too complicated for anybody to actually audit (laughs) there was a federal prosecutor in florida who prosecuted two multi-million dollar LIHTC fraud cases. And he described the program as, quote, a subterranean ATM, and only <laughs> the developers know the pin. Jesus. Ooh. That that person was like was like, you know, has secret a secret desire to write sort of like gumshoe spine. <laughs> <Right. laughs> that's that's that that's some poetry right there. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that was that was a pretty good line. I could not put that one in. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of the the short version is that a developer um, gets awarded a reduction in taxes for 10 years. 
And okay. so that's where the tax credits part of the name comes from. Now, the developer is not actually supposed to use these tax credits, but rather to trade these credits to investors for a lump sum of cash. Um, so the investors are getting um, a long-term tax break, and in the short term, they're giving away this lump sum of cash, and this cash is used as the down payment. So with the down payment secured, the developer can get a mortgage for the rest of the building. Make sense? Kind of. So um, so it, really the idea is that like you so, – so the tax credits are, are like a commodity that can be sold by the developer – well, that, that they're your investments, right? Gotcha. So this is like this is like how you make your initial investment back. You get these tax credits, which are going to pay out over a series of time, and the investors trade you real money right now, probably less than what those tax credits are worth, and then they make their money back plus some. Sure. Yes. I mean, this is the part of uh, of when you're learning the rules of a board game and you're like selling fruit in a Mediterranean market. You're like, I don't know, let's just start playing and I'm sure it'll make sense. Like, <laughs> let's just go. Like, it's fine. But I yeah. think that does I think that does make sense. And also it shows like how good it is to be an investor. I will glad I will gladly pay you to get to today in a single hamburger for infinite hamburgers over a 10 year period. Right. <laughs> Nice, uh, right. nice Popeye reference. Yeah. Too. Right. So, um, so um, the the tax credits are often traded multiple, multiple times, and it's just it's very confusing, um, and that's what makes it so complicated and, and just impossible to audit. Um, so, well, that and that makes sense too, because you must just like defray, like so. They, it's basically like they give you they give you these funds, and then they to audit you, they would make sure that you manage those effectively, right? But by design, you're immediately supposed to scatter those funds to the winds, exactly. which then can be scattered further. Oh, <laughs> what a nightmare! And this leads to corruption somehow. <laughs> I don't. It's hard to it's hard to picture. Not that. In, I don't have the tax credit anymore. My brother's got it. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. So, uh, so, I mean, so uh, yeah, so so you see where we're going with this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even if there were no fraud at all. Even if everything was completely honest, there is just so much wasteful spending on middlemen because every time these tax credits change hands, everyone is taking a cut. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that there is like someone whose whole job it is in the private sector just to manage this oh, yeah. kind of these kinds of transactions. And I'm sure that person is waiting to corner me at a party and tell me everything about their job <laughs> sometime in my future when I can be within six feet of straight, relative strangers. <laughs> so whatever the limitations of the program, um, it was started in 1986 and it's responsible for constructing one out of every seven units of multifamily housing in the United States. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, so everything clear about uh, about that program? Yeah. I yeah. mean, like, by, by intention, no, it seems for <laughs> right, the program right. itself, but for our purposes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dumb question. My fault. Um, <laughs> prior to LIHTC, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, um, had some more straightforward uh, cash subsidy programs for rental housing development. So these programs were called Rent Supplement, Rental Assistance Payment, and Project-Based Section 8. And the way that these work is that the developer agrees to reserve the housing for low-income households and charge affordable rents 
for five to 50 years. And then the developer receives a monthly cash payment for that time period from HUD uh, to make up the difference between affordable rents and market rents. Okay. Make so sense? again, so this is again explicitly public. Like this is another situation where like there is no risk in essence for the private for the investor, or there's minimized risk. Right. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. As long as you can find low income households to rent to, HUD is going to make up the difference um, between like what you could have you know, made for, you know, based on the market rents for that area. <laughs> and, and luckily, capitalism is providing those all the time. So we're we're, we're great. Right. Yeah. Um, so, OK, so these programs have been discontinued. Um, now, remember, some of these contracts lasted, you know, they were, they were signed for 50 years. And so there actually are some housing complexes that are still under contract, um, from these programs, but there haven't been any new cash grants for decades. Um, it will point out that project-based section eight is not the same thing as section eight housing vouchers, similar name, completely different program. Um, 1.6 million units of multifamily rental housing was constructed using these programs. Then there are two other HUD programs that continue to this day, uh, providing cash grants for vulnerable populations. And so these are Section 202 and Section 811. And these are reserved for seniors and people with disabilities. And since they've been around, they have subsidized the construction of 160,000 units of housing. Worth pointing out, there is no free market solution Um, to housing for seniors and people with disabilities because they can't work. Because they house such vulnerable populations, they're more important than they they might seem. The second way that the federal government subsidizes multifamily rental housing is through public lending. Um, So basically, there is a government lender. um, It's offering subsidized mortgages with subsidized interest rates um, that are available to private developers. These programs are sections 202 and 236. Those are both HUD programs. They've been discontinued. And then section 515, which is still around today, um, it's run by the Rural Housing Service. Um, Since the 1950s, these programs have built 1.1 million units of housing. Um, Section 515 is a pretty remarkable program. Um, 87% of U.S. counties have a Section 515 development. Hmm. Um, and uh, uh, it, so in, it disproportionately houses seniors and people with disabilities. A pretty amazing factoid. Um, the median income for uh, Section 515 is $13,600 per year per household. Whoa. Um, not per individual, per household. So that's I, yeah, just desperate. That's good. I'm glad that I'm glad there's something to help at least in that capacity. Jesus. Yeah, um, yeah. And so median means that half of everybody makes less. So half <sighs> of everyone in a Section 515 development makes less than thirteen thousand six hundred dollars per year um, for their whole household. So. Public lending, the government offers subsidized mortgages for multifamily housing construction. Um, that's that. Make sense? Yes. Does. Thank goodness it's there. Right, right. <sighs> the third way that the federal government subsidizes multifamily rental housing is through public insurance. 
this one's also going to sound familiar to last episode in exchange for a fee that's usually paid by the developer the government will cover any of a lender's losses if the developer cannot pay back the loan um, so we're going to talk about one program right here and uh, it's another HUD program it's called section 221.3d and this is another one that's been discontinued but while it was around it built 159,000 units of housing whoa Okay. Makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to pause here um, because um, these programs uh, that we've talked about so far, um, that's LIHTC, Rent Supplement, Rental Assistance Payment, Project-Based Section 8, and Sections 202, 811, 236, 221D3, and 515. Um there's two similar characteristics that they all, you know, they all share. Um, so that's why we're pausing here. Your typical listener I know is not going to remember this mouthful of program, you know, <laughs> nine or 10 programs. Um, but there's two things that are worth, worth thinking about. Um, so the first one is that we have, we have really good public data, right? We know how many units of housing were created by these programs. Um, for the rest of the section, we're not going to be able to do that. We're not going to be able to find the exact number of units built um, using you know each type of support. The other one is that they all had temporary affordability requirements. Um, so in exchange for subsidy um, for five to 50 years, uh, you could only rent to low-income households and you had to charge affordable rents. Make sense? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at these two. So... Um, Adding all of these programs up, uh, these programs have subsidized the construction of more than 5.5 million units of private multifamily housing. Um, that's more than one in four units of multifamily rental housing in the entire United States. That's staggering. Jeez, yeah. Now, some some caveats with that number. Um so some of these buildings have been demolished. There's no data set tracking demolitions. So, you know, we don't know how many. Um, and then there's uh, some technical problems with the data. Um, it's just kind of widely acknowledged that the count of multifamily housing is um, it's not accurate. And to kind of illustrate why, um, can you picture uh, a row of townhomes um, or sometimes they're called row homes sure. um, where yeah. they're, you know, like the very narrow, uh, maybe two or three stories tall uh, homes. And they're all kind of stuck together. Yeah. Right? It's like, like a, it's peppering, like peppering DC's foggy bottom. Yeah. Neighbor. So it's yeah. Uh, it's um, yeah. like a single building, but there's, you know, maybe six to 12 um, of these kind of long, narrow, tall uh, homes. Right. Yeah. Are so. Are those um, so? Is that a multi-family building, or are those single-family homes attached? Oh, that's a good question. I would say single-family homes attached. That would be my first impulse, but I suspect I'm going to hear otherwise. Well, I don't know, and um, uh, the problem okay. is that a lot of times when people are filling out these surveys, they don't know either. Gotcha. And so it's just there's uh, there's a lot of there's a few things like that, um, and so we just we're not really confident in our data on multi you know on our headcount of multifamily sure. uh, apartments. Um, so so that's a problem, um, but. With, you know, with those caveats in mind, there's no question that these programs have constructed a huge share of our private multifamily rental housing, mm. um, right? Over one in four, uh, one in four units. 
so the other the other point um, to make about these programs is those temporary affordability requirements. So again, for five to 50 years, you can only rent to low-income households and you have to charge affordable rents. We, you know, we all may have lived in a for-profit apartment that, you know, we didn't know was built decades ago with federal subsidy. So maybe um, some apartment building that we lived in in the past uh, got a public loan from HUD and for 25 years it was reserved as low-income housing and then once that 25 years ended um, they were able to rent it out to uh, anyone at any price. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of those buildings. Sure. I mean, yeah, just do so, just by the nature of like, you know, the need of how buildings are created and I suppose how they're acquired. That's just like that would make sense. Right, right. Um, so so we've all we've we, you know, a good chance we've lived in a building that was subsidized in this way. And then those um, those temporary affordability requirements um, ended and then, you know, they were just renting to, you know, they could rent to whoever for whatever price they could get. Sure. I think these are bad policy, these temporary affordability requirements. Um, what, what do you think? Um, I mean, I, I think it definitely, I mean, it sets things up for problems, right? Because, I mean, you know, when you talk about the idea that, like, I mean, on the most basic of all observational, like, basic of all levels, like, if it is baked into the the existence of the the home that it must be affordable, that is a good thing for the welfare of society and like the continued existence of, of, of people's the continued insurance of people's basic rights, but setting a sort of a threshold, a time-based threshold by which you can say, Hey, if you, you know, we'll give you all this money and support, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll offer support and assistance and, you know, um, help you early on. Then you just wait. So it's kind of like, it'd be kind of, I mean, this, this is roughly, this is sort of parallel to like, um, you know, companies, founders of companies being sort of celebrated, but then ultimately being like the children of rich people, right? There's no, there's no real, well, that's actually, that's a terrible example. Oh my God. But, but no, it's, 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 you know, you know, so you get all this funding, it, it eases the introductory cost, and then you just wait on it. And then eventually you make a, a killing. I mean, it seems like it, it must work well for um, the people who make money from these deals. It does not seem, because our particular interest is, of course, making sure people have some place to live and, um, and can afford to live there as long as they wish to. Uh, it's, it's repugnant. Um, and, but I would say that even if people are like, well, it's just business. I mean, you got to think about it and like, you can't just trap people and blah, blah, blah. You can be like, yes, but is it fair to suddenly displace so many people just because just because now you can start charging any kind of rent you want? And it's not as if renters typically have a lot of protections um, in this country. So I, I I think that just from the standpoint of like I don't know if if you if you if all these people have, have grown up in this neighborhood and they've lived in this apartment building for most of their lives and suddenly you throw them out where are they supposed to go like what are they supposed to do if they can't if they're priced out of the neighborhood that's 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 bad both for the community and for those individuals yeah yeah and i mean even if you accept the logic that um something that's gotten subsidy um ought to be uh you know that subsidy should 
you know, should like wear, should wear off that the conditions imposed on from that subsidy ought to wear off eventually uh, or phase out. Um, I, I think it doesn't, it just seems backwards. Um, so, you know, imagine that you're developing a building and in 30 years you can start charging unrestricted rents. Um, you know, you're the developer. Development is not straightforward. Um, you know, you've got to hire everyone from the architect to the bricklayers to the electricians. You're going to have to coordinate all the financing. Um, 30 years later, the developers who actually did the work developing have probably retired. Oh, um, yeah. The architect, the bricklayer, the electricians, right? All, you know, all those guys have retired too. The people who actually did the work to build the building aren't going to be the ones to benefit from charging the unrestricted rents. Hmm. Um, if anything, that's backwards. And, you know, for what? Um, so we've got this massive public investment, right? Litech is $10 billion per year. And, you know, that's good for creating affordable housing opportunities for one to two generations. And then those affordable housing opportunities just overnight just disappear. Hmm. And and for what? To allow people who didn't build the building to, to profit off of it. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's it's it's. What is what, why? How do they justify it when you read about it? Are they saying basically so that your market doesn't stagnate, so they can kind of keep up with um, rising rent in the in the relative area? Like what? Why? Why do they start these temporary, or why do they put these temporary holds on? Um, to if to like into your point, like the people who build them are not usually the people who are going to benefit from them. Um, that's a good question. Um. I, I mean, so I think it's kind of a lack of creativity. Um, so, so like the the restrictions are written into a loan, and um, that's how it's enforceable. Is that like you're under the terms of this loan, um, or we're insuring this loan, and so if under the the terms of us insuring this loan, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Um, but it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be done that way. There are ways to make those things permanent. There are ways to make, you know, make it so those things don't end when the loan is paid off. Sure. Um, I really don't understand the logic. If we're going to be investing in housing for people, then we shouldn't, we shouldn't be allowing it to disappear after a generation or two. Yeah. I mean, again, like as we talked on in the first episode, so much of the passing of intergenerational wealth is through homes. I guess like rental properties doesn't necessarily apply to that. But like if you are explicitly framing something in such a way that it that after a generation, it will no longer be able to do the thing that it is intended to do in essence. I guess that's a very a charitable read. Um, that must have broader economic ramifications for people. Right. Like that's, well, that seems crazy. And it still does. I mean, like the, the idea of people getting priced out and having to having to commute so long just sure. to reach like the, the places where they've worked and their parents worked. Yeah. Um, I mean, that even even though that does not affect their ability to uh, accumulate wealth the same way, not being able to pass down property or land does, it's it does still cut into their bottom line. Yeah. Right. That, that that requires more childcare time, more yeah. like just time away from your family in general. Like that's not that's also not equitable. 
or suddenly you're just paying double rent now that yeah you know exactly that. like that's that's the other options like if you don't want to move then you're then i guess you better get another job or you do right. move and and the market rate is you know double yeah um yeah. so um yeah i i just uh i struggle to understand it um, so these programs with temporary affordability requirements, um, they constructed a huge proportion of, uh, of our nation's multifamily rental housing, and a lot of it entered the for-profit market. Um, so the total number of units built is equivalent to more than one in four units of all uh, U.S. multifamily housing. So going back to insurance, the federal government no longer insures multifamily mortgages with HUD contracts like we with these temporary affordability requirements we were just talking about. Um, But there are four federal government programs that do still guarantee multifamily mortgages. And so these organizations are the Federal Housing Administration, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, we met the three of them last episode, and the Rural Housing Service. Um, and so you know, this is the same thing, right? The developer pays a monthly fee and the federal government will cover a lender's losses if the developer, for some reason, can't pay back the loan. Gotcha. So how much housing is subsidized in this way? It varies. When the economy is strong, about one in five multifamily mortgages are guaranteed by the federal government. Um, that's a really big number. That's a lot of subsidy. But in 2009... A whopping 65% of all multifamily mortgages originated <laughs> held a federal guarantee. Wow. Um, so 2009 was the height of the Great Recession. Um, in 2013, you know, that's technically the recovery um, after the Great Recession. Um, but still, 40% of, uh, of multifamily mortgages originated in 2013 had a federal guarantee. Hmm. So, you know, this, this, this spike in government support for private multifamily mortgages, it really illustrates a really important point about government support for housing. People need a place to live, whether the economy is good or bad. We don't just stop needing shelter if the yeah. economy enters a recession. So because its support accelerates in recessions, the federal government is even more important to the private multifamily mortgage system than it might first appear. And you're going to miss that if you only look at averages. Makes sense. That does make sense. And what we're seeing now where, I mean, like the economy is in a real bad way. I mean, people are still trying to find ways to make money. So it makes sense that, you know, this would be one of the few games in town to continue if you're if you're in a um, a developer this is how you get it done right you st- you work with these government programs which m- maybe in the maybe in better times you wouldn't have to or you wouldn't you wouldn't go to this well but right it's, it's what's available right, so obviously right. it would balloon it is sort of striking how high it stays even when times are good though right it must be it must be a good deal yeah. Right. No, totally. Yeah. And like, even when times are great, um, one in five mortgages are guaranteed by the federal government. That's just a huge number. Um, yeah. then when times are bad, two and three, and then even when times are a lot better, um, it's still, you know, it's still two and five. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's a big source of support. 
It's interesting when you think about this, where um, kind of the argument always of of having um, of having like a universal income, guaranteed income, um, is that they're like, well, people will stop working because that's uh, they won't have to, and you know, and we don't see that with countries that have that. So I, I think it's mostly a straw man. But you know, it's like one of those things where when um, when uh, interests. Um, reveal what they would do if they were in that situation. Um, I think that that might be the case where businesses hmm. are like, well, if you just gave us money as you do the <laughs> government, we would never pay it back and we would also stop contributing to society. <laughs> um, so why would we expect individuals to do anything different? It's. Uh, I wonder if there's a bit of that here as well. <laughs> Well, they're like, well, this is a great deal. Why would we stop using this system, this uh, program? This is fantastic. Let's just keep going. <laughs> right. So we are to our fourth and final way um, that we're going to talk about today of the federal government uh, supporting multifamily rental housing. Um, and that's by the federal government purchasing mortgages. And hmm. this is exactly the same as our discussion on homeownership. I was going to say, right. like, that sounds very similar to uh, things we've talked about before. Yes, very, very similar. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, so last episode, um, you know, we talked a lot about how Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac purchase owner-occupied mortgages. And then when the federal government purchases these mortgages, um, they're creating, uh, they're adding a lot of liquidity to the banking system, right? They're taking these mortgages, which are illiquid, they're buying them and giving the lenders uh, cash, and the mm-hmm. lenders can take that cash and make more loans, right? Because sure. you can't make a loan out of another loan, but you can make, you know, another loan out of cash. When the federal government buys these mortgages, they are accepting all of the risk of those loans so that the banks don't have to assume any of that risk. Mm-hmm. So it's about taking on the risk and also adding liquidity to the system so that more loans can be made. So um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac buy a lot of owner-occupied mortgages. They also buy a lot of multifamily mortgages. Um, And it's just it's the same thing. It's just the, you know, the size of the loans is different. The source of the loans might be different. Um, And it's all just real estate to them. So why would it be different? Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So how much? Uh, In 2014, there was $1 trillion in outstanding multifamily mortgage debt. Of that, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac owned 43%. So almost half. Almost half, yeah. Uh, That's just an enormous source of of subsidy. Um, And then, you know, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, um, much of the remaining 57% could not have been possible without the increased liquidity um, that was created when Fannie Mae and Freddie uh, Mac bought those loans. Um, so, if, you know, if you don't remember, you can uh, check out episode three, where we went into great detail on liquidity. Um, all the same issues are at play here um, by buying these loans. They're creating a lot of extra liquidity um, and dramatically expanding the number of loans that the banking system can make. All right. So let's wrap up this section on multifamily rental housing. So we talked about four ways the federal government supports uh, multifamily rental housing. Um, and that's through cash grants, public lending, 
insurance and then purchasing uh, purchasing the mortgages. And you want an estimate of the total number of units of multifamily rental housing that were built um, with government subsidy. And um, that's just not going to be possible. Um, so we can get close, but you know, why can't we come up with a exact number? What do you think? I mean, based on uh, previous observations, it seems like maybe there's just a lot of, I mean, inherent fuzziness in this process. Is is it just sort of similar to, uh, oh God, the name is, it just slipped my brain. The Litech? Li- li- it's is also, sort of- I think it's also like the grains of sand, of rice on a chessboard. No. It's like, okay, so now you've loosened up because you can't make a loan out of another loan. So let's make, let's turn that loan into cash. Now you can make a loan from that loan. Mm-hmm. You start making money again. And it's just kind of like... To, to trace it back and figure out how many how many of these um, transactions, let's say, are being supported by this would be very difficult. Exactly. Uh, especially over time. Like, yeah. It, it, it exponentially increases and in a way that is probably not, um, like, you can't really get nice averages for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, like, that's, that's really well put. Um, so... I mean, so yeah, it's the, the liquidity. Um, it's we can't measure, uh, you know, we can't measure liquidity. Like if if Fannie Mae buys a loan, where does each dollar of that purchase go? Like you can't say that it went here, there, and and it made this mortgage or that mortgage. Um, we know that it's having a huge effect, um, but you can't like trace, you know, dollar for dollar um, where each you know dollar of extra liquidity went. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, yeah, so that's so that's well put. Um, Thank you. So, yeah. So and then, you know, just to I mean, just because it's so important, I'll repeat it one more time. Um, If Fannie Mae buys your loan, that loan is subsidized because Fannie Mae is assuming all the risk of that loan. Right. The government Mm -hmm. is taking all the risk of lending away from the lender. Um, And then, of course, additional loans are now possible due to the increased liquidity. Um, You can make more loans because Fannie Mae turned your illiquid loan into liquid cash. Um, So that's one reason. Um, It's just hard to trace liquidity. Um, We also talked about some of the issues with the data um, on the headcount of multifamily housing just not being super accurate. And that applies Mm -hmm. here, too. but also imagine that you are a developer um, and you have a money orchard. Um, and so, you know, you buy, uh, you harvest some some money and you buy a building with cash. And so you never use any loan and so forth. Um, and so therefore, there's no government subsidy. Are you as a developer still relying on the government? Hmm. What do you think? Like in indirect way, or I mean, I guess like in a sense, like. <laughs> well, <laughs> if not for, I mean, this might be a little bit pedantic, but probably if it's a if it's an existing building, probably it couldn't have been built without subsidies. Mm. So no, you couldn't have you couldn't have gotten this this land purchase. And if you want to, if you ever want to um, sell it. Uh, you also are on the. Uh, you also rely on the government to subsidize that as well. Right, because the buyer, if you need to sell it, the buyer is going to be using subsidies. If you can never right. sell something, that's not a functioning free market. <laughs> right. Otherwise, 
Otherwise, it's like it's like the most private of private property. <laughs> yeah. So. Right. Like you own something and it's only yours forever. You cannot sell it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, uh, so, you know, kind of with all that in mind, here's what we do know. Um, so about one in four units of multifamily housing were built with these programs that had temporary affordability requirements. And so once again, uh, those were LIHTC, rent supplement, rental assistance payments, project-based Section 8, and Sections 202, 811, 236, 221D3, and 515. Um, and so these uh, are programs that are run by HUD, the IRS, uh, the Rural Housing Service. Um, a lot of this housing is now unrestricted for-profit housing. Um, a lot of us have probably lived in one of these buildings without knowing it. Um, about one in four Um for yeah. mortgages that were insured by the federal government. And again, that's the Federal Housing Administration, the Rural Housing Service, and then Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, that accounts for 20 to 65% of all uh, mortgage or originations. Um, so obviously higher in recessions, lower when times are good. Um, mortgages that are actually owned by the government. Um, so Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, um, that's 43%. So if you add this all up, you will get a number that is greater than 100%. Hmm. So hmm. Um, I guess the bottom line here is that, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of data is not in the public record. Like we just don't know exactly how individual buildings are subsidized. But there is no question that government subsidy for multifamily rental housing is enormous. Um, the multifamily rental housing market would just come crashing down without federal subsidy. Um, and then, you know, we talked about issues of liquidity, right? Our estimate of greater than 100%, um, that's even an underestimate because it doesn't account for increased <laughs> liquidity in the banking system. Um, Which is why more than 100% is, is sure, sure. allowable. Right, right. Like this, because you have this sudden and unexpected, unexplainable, inexplicable, <laughs> except for these subsidies, bolus of cash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. That's why it's more than 100%. And then, um, right. And then government insurance and purchase of loans. This is all making the whole system less risky for lenders to make loans. Less risk means lower interest rates. And lower interest rates means that more housing can be built for the same amount of money. So government support is even more important than it, it might appear because it keeps the interest rates low and low interest rates means more housing. So, um, has, have, have we done it? Um, have we, have we made a compelling case that all private multifamily rental housing is public housing? I think pretty solidly, honestly. I mean, even like, more so than uh, one to fours, I would say. Yeah. 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 Yes. Because nearly yeah. all units of multifamily rental housing have been directly subsidized by the federal government. On top of that, the government lowers interest rates, meaning more housing can be built. On top of that, the government adds a tremendous amount of liquidity to the system, meaning more loans can be originated. Uh, well, guys, thanks again for listening to our show. Um, check us out at Apple Podcast, Google Play, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, again, wherever you checked us out to listen this far into the episode. And of course, remember to tell tell your friends, tell your family, kind of get the word out. It's uh, 
obviously does a lot for us. And if you have a moment, please feel free to give us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. Um, and while you're on the internet, uh, why don't you pop over to uh, the website for Chris's organization, housing the number four. Dot us that's housing for us and after you've done that uh, pop over to outrageousmechanisms.com to find some more fun podcasts from us so make sure to join us for our next and final installment where we wrap things up uh, till then bye bye, bye. Outrageous.